verses tonight. Let's open up first to John 15. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from my Father, he will bear witness about me. And now 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is the word of the Lord. If I had to pick a Christian belief that would be most likely to never appear on a coffee mug, uh, it might be, I believe the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And if I think of all the things that I've never said in a hospital when I've most wanted to comfort uh, a person greatly troubled and suffering, I've never said, just remember, friend, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's not the first thing that comes to mind. But it is in the Creed. And if you've been following along in this series, as we've been asking, what are we saying when we say the Creed? This may be the phrase where you have most wondered, is that even in the Bible? Uh, And it is. We're in a series asking the question that Stan referred to of, How do we pursue oneness in a theologically diverse congregation? And our answer has been this. All Souls wants to be a church where Christians who disagree about important questions of biblical interpretation can live together in loving unity. We strive towards this vision by affirming the Nicene Creed while respecting, challenging, and learning from our brothers and sisters who interpret the Bible differently on non-creedal issues. And so we're taking a lot of time to go line by line through the creed. And tonight we want to consider this phrase that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, what are the fathers doing there? They are describing the inner life of the Trinity. Uh, They're trying to summarize what the Scripture says about how the Spirit relates to the Son and the Father. Now, normally, I like to base uh, our sermons on one passage, one text. Um, But that's not really possible here because this idea of peering into the inner workings of the Trinity and noticing how they relate takes us all through the New Testament and not just to one particular passage. And and tonight I want to look at a number of verses with you that talk about, first, the Spirit's relationship with the Father and Son, but then, as if that were one line in a song, I want to go from there into the the whole course uh, of this mysterious inner life of God. And I think it will be confusing at first, uh, but then hopefully a single theme will emerge. And, And what I want you to think about as we do this is, How do the members of the Trinity relate to one another? And then, uh, when we're through, what does this teach us about how we're to relate, especially amidst diversity? Especially when we're different people with different beliefs and differently in the world. Now, where I've probably grown the most in thinking about this is uh, in a conversation or two I had with uh, Buddy Odom, and, and a little lesson he taught the pilgrimage class a few years ago, and he, he got an easel and he sketched 
the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and then he put us down at the bottom, and he had Jill read John 14 to 17. And then every time Jesus talked about a particular relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, or us, but he would draw a line. And 20 minutes later, you had this marvelous dance sketched out on, on the pad. And I, I've never forgotten it. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the dance of the Trinity, the, the mutually interdependent, interweaving way that the Godhead relates. And so as we were preparing for tonight, I uh, asked Ashley, one of our gifted artists, to um, just paint as we look at some of these texts and see what the Spirit might bring uh, to her about the Trinity. Now, the first verse I want to look at is the one that Tim read, and that's John 15, 26. And, and uh, it's the Last Supper. Jesus is talking about relating to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I'll read it again because these are not the easiest verses to, to, to understand. When the Helper comes, Jesus says, talking about the Spirit or paraclete, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father will bear witness about me. So Jesus promises to send the Spirit to the disciples. Jesus also says that the Spirit will proceed from the Father. And the Greek word just means to come out of. Okay? Now, a few verses earlier, John 14, 16, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate. And then He says in John 14, 26, The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Now, there's something interesting going on here. In the first text, the Son asks the Father, the Father sends the Spirit. In the second text, the Father sends the Spirit in the name of the Son. Now, there's another uh, verse that addresses this in that sermon, John 16, 7. Nonetheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage, Jesus says, that I go away. If I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now, assuming that Jesus is uh, coherent and consistent in this, it's interesting that in one verse he says, the Father's going to send you the Spirit. And a few verses later he says, I'm going to send you the Spirit. Now, what could be going on there? Well, are you beginning to catch a glimpse of the inner light, life of the Trinity yet? Well, another set of texts talks specifically about the Spirit's relationship with the Son. Uh, Galatians 4.6, the Spirit is the Spirit of the Son. Romans 8.9, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Philippians 1.19, the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Son. Now, let's go a little deeper into this mystery, and we'll see a paradox um, uh, that is really intriguing. On the one hand, Jesus gives the Spirit to the church. Mark 1.8, Jesus baptizes in the Spirit. Acts 2.33, Jesus pours out the Spirit. John 20, 22, Jesus breathes the Spirit on the disciples. So Jesus is giving, pouring out, sending the Spirit onto the people of God. But on the other hand, 
Jesus is entirely dependent upon the same Spirit that he gives in his earthly ministry. The Spirit baptizes Jesus and anoints him for ministry, Luke 3.21. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, Mark 1.12. Jesus returns from the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit, that's in Luke 4. Jesus chooses the apostles through the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.2. Jesus casts out demons by the Spirit, Matthew 12.28. Jesus offers himself to the Father through the eternal Spirit, Hebrews 9.14. In the Spirit, he descended to the dead, 1 Peter 3.19. By the Spirit, he was raised from the dead, Romans 8.11. So you've got all this activity going on in the Godhead. One a uh, theologian looks at all these texts, and he says this. He says, the point to stress here is that the Spirit's more central to the story of Jesus than theology is usually acknowledged. It was by the Spirit that Jesus was conceived, anointed, empowered, commissioned, directed, raised up. We emphasize God sending the Son and must not, must not lose the balance of a double sending. God sends both Son and Spirit. Irenaeus spoke of them as God's two hands, implying a joint mission. The relationship is dialectical. The Son is sent in the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit is poured out by the risen Lord. Their missions are intertwined and equal. One is not major and the other minor. It's not right to be Christocentric if being Christocentric means subordinating the Spirit to the Son. The two are partners in the work of redemption. So the Father sends the Spirit, the Son sends the Spirit. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Son. The Son depends on the Spirit. Now, several other passages tell us that the Spirit helps us worship the Son. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. John 16, 12. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will glorify me. Now, there's other verses that say that the Spirit helps us worship the Father. Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then there are other verses that talk about the reciprocal relationship between the Spirit and the Son. Romans 8, 9 says that the only way you can have the Son is to have the Spirit. 1 John 4, 2 says that the only way you can know that you have the Spirit is to believe in the Son. <laughs> now, St. Augustine was one of the early church writers that uh, wrote the most about this, and he liked to describe the Spirit as the bond of love between the Father and the Son. Uh, and he, he often talked about Luke 10, 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, what's going on in that passage? You've got the Son praying to the Father as he rejoices in the Spirit. And there's just this idea that as the Father and the Son are communicating, the joy of the Spirit is flooding them both. Isn't that an intriguing, beautiful picture? Now, in your small groups, uh, when you talk about this, uh, one of the things that you might do, and I suggested this in the notes that I, that I sent out this morning, is you might go through all these verses. And if you have a whiteboard, you might sketch it out. If you have some artists, you might paint it. Or if you're like me and you have no talent, um, you could just talk about 
some of the things that you observe. And one of the things, I did this with a group of people this week, and I heard words like, I said, describe the Trinity. And they said, interdependent, interpenetrating, unified, mysterious, other-centered, lacking jealousy, no ego, mutually submissive, unified agenda, always pointing somewhere other than themselves, cyclical, trusting, intimate, love, and honor. Now, it's not surprising that the, uh, some of the theologians in the early church described the Trinity as a circle dance, uh, holding hands, interweaving, interpenetrating, mutually going in and out of one another. Now, here is a quote uh, of, from one scholar who tries to summarize the inner life of the Trinity. That's not easy to do. Um, can we have the next one, please? There is no solitary person separated from the others, no above and below, no first, second, third in importance, no ruling and controlling and being ruled and controlled, no position or privilege to be maintained over against others, no questions of conflict concerning who's in charge, no possible rivalry or competition between competing individuals, no need to assert independence and authority of one at the expense of the others. Now there is only the fellowship and community of equals who share all they have in their communion with each other, each living with and for the others in mutual openness, self-giving love, and support, each free from but for the others. That is how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are related in the inner circle of the Godhead. Well, you know, as we think about how, how do we love God's word and yet disagree about important truths in love? The Trinity is a wonderful example. It's a wonder mo- wonderful model of unity and diversity. Now, obviously, the members of the Trinity don't disagree. They know all the truth. But they are an example of how distinct, different persons love each other amidst diversity. And and really, when you think about it, we disagree about lots of things. We disagree about things uh, probably other than theology most of the time. I I looked at a blog for a New York real estate company today. Here's their five top areas roommates fight about. Uh, Is your boyfriend going to be here every night? I thought we were splitting the utility bill. It's your turn to empty the dishwasher. I didn't know you were getting a dog. (laughs) Are you my friend or just my roommate? Relevant magazine ran a story on the top five conflict areas for couples. Money, sex, children, work, chores. And I was shocked that the double procession of the Spirit from the Father and Son was not on the list of things that uh, couples fight about. Psychologists identified four reasons why best friends break up. First reason, you have an epic argument or disagreement that betrays trust and dissolves the relationship. Second, you slowly drift apart as one or both of the partners in the friendship lack the energy to keep the friendship alive. Three, you go through a significant life change, like graduating from college or taking a new job that pulls you away. Four, you and your friend communicate differently. 
Now, what, what was interesting to me as I kind of surveyed pop psychology on these things is the relationships were so disposable. Uh, it, it was just assumed that these things are going to happen, and when they do, here's how you unwind it. And I kept looking for, you know, how do you work through a breakup? You know, how, how do you work through a disagreement? I couldn't find much on it. It was all about how to dump the turkey was, was kind of the, uh, the, the approach. Um, the goal, of course, is not to find a relationship where you never disagree. That's an illusion, isn't it? That's a, a fantasy. Uh, John Gottman, uh, the marriage researcher, uh, he says that core differences between married couples are almost never resolved. He said couples that thrive over the long haul find a way to honor and respect one another anyway, and they learn to avoid the toxic forms of arguments that tear down relationships like criticizing character, contempt, and defensiveness. So our goal isn't to find a place where we all agree. Uh, Our goal is to learn how to disagree in a way that moves towards oneness. And one of the things I'm suggesting tonight is that the Trinity provides a model for what that might look like. The rhythms of the Trinity, that sense of mutual submission, of foreness, of love, of honor, of respect, uh, of being interested in a greater good, that's the kind of movement, that's the kind of energy, that's the kind of dance that a relationship or a community uh, can enter into to move through disagreement and love. Now, one of the things that I, I've been doing uh, in preparing for the series, I've just been reading a lot and, and looking at how different uh, churches and people talk about disagreeing in love. And I, I found something called the Colossians Forum. I may have mentioned it before, but here is a, uh, an introduction to their ministry. They say, the church today is more polarized than ever. It's nearly impossible to discuss liberal and conservative politics, intergenerational perspectives on spirituality, theories of human origins without being attacked or dismissed. As Christians, the way we argue about or ignore complex issues has perpetuated divisiveness and cynicism within the body of Christ. It's one of the main reasons people are abandoning the faith. We are overdue for a new kind of conversation. We host forums on these types of controversial topics concerning faith, science, and culture. Together we worship, hear multiple perspectives, thoughtfully engage, and seek the value of practicing Christian virtues even in conflict. Our vision is for transforming the church from a place of combative polarization that's losing credibility with young Christians and in larger society to one that is charitable, thoughtful, and able to engage tough problems. A church that knows even in disagreements all things hold together in Christ. Now, I was very intrigued by that. I, I don't really know of many places or maybe any places where Christians are actually trying to do that. There's something called the Veritas Forum, but that's usually with a, someone from a non-Christian perspective and a Christian perspective debate on a college campus. And, and so I was intrigued, and they had a, a workshop online, and it was, uh, it was a forum on human sexuality. And there were five uh, really long... <laughs> Uh, and poorly edited um, videos on it. But I watched the whole thing, and and they had people from different perspectives arguing about sexuality. And, you know, I didn't agree with all of it, and sometimes I wanted them to ask this, and sometimes I thought it was too slanted this way. But at the end of the day, I thought, you know, this smells like the Trinity. I've never seen Christians try to do this. 
And uh, this kind of feels Trinitarian to me. This, uh, this idea that somehow if you, when you're disagreeing, you're doing it with love and honor, that in a way you're, you're witnessing to the Trinity. That's pretty powerful. Now, I don't think the Trinity gives a list of five things to do when we disagree. Um, I wish it did. But I do think, as a church, if, if we think about the Trinity as a model of perfect relating, it can provide us with a kind of vision for what happens in my marriage or my, with my roommate or my small group or whatever it is uh, when, we get, when we disagree and get into conflict with each other. Um, see, the wonderful mystery of the Christian life is not that we get to think about the Trinity, but that we get to join the Trinity. And that's our Lord's prayer in John 17, the end of it. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, and that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, so that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. And so I think the Lord's desire is not just that we think about the Trinity, but that we step into the Trinity, that we join the dance of the Trinity. And I would argue that he's already done that. We are already in the Trinity by virtue of what he did on the cross. The question is whether or not we live out of that. And so the next time you're in a situation of disagreement, um, conflict, uh, an argument, Think Trinitarianly about it. And instead of going to, okay, here's five things I should do, look at your heart and try to figure out where the energy is. Uh, if, if I'm not driven by ego and I'm not defensive and I'm not demanding and I'm not threatened and I'm, not, and I'm committed to serving you and I'm committed to understanding you, that's probably a sign that I'm, I'm dancing in the Trinity that the Spirit is active and alive, and that this conflict is redemptive. But if fear is controlling me, and I am suspicious or jealous, and I'm lying awake at night replaying what I'm going to say to you over and over again to make my point, and I'm gaining allies, and my ego is reigning, that's a sign that I've stepped out of the Trinity, and I'm now relating to you out of my flesh. So... So dealing with disagreement in a Trinitarian way, I think, has a lot to do with what dance we're in, which, which way the, the energy is flowing. Now, it's interesting. Uh, in the garden, one way to think about Jesus' very troubling prayer when he says, Lord, you know, take this cup from me, essentially what he was asking was, can I leave the dance floor? This dance is too painful. I want out. And if the Lord had left the dance, the whole mission of God would obviously not have, not have been accomplished. And, and I think there's a principle there, is that our tendency in conflict and disagreement, emotionally and relationally, is to want to leave the dance. And I know there are times when you need to move and change, and I'm not, obviously that's true. But the human tendency 
is to separate, is to pull out too early, to um, withdraw, whether emotionally or other ways to, you know, I'm I'm done with these friends. I'm going to move over to these friends because they're going to be better. They won't, by the way. Um, When you leave the dance, even in conflict, you abort the the mission of what God is trying to do. Um, So, when the fathers, led by the Spirit, included this little phrase about the inner life of the Trinity, I, I think they were trying to give us a glimpse into the house of love. And I think because we're made in the image of God, and God now dwells in us, and we now dwell in Him, we can dance the way the Trinity does. So, when you are in conflict, and when you're disagreeing, ask, how am I dancing? Now, I wanted to end with just a... Uh, amusing, just something that's kind of been percolating that doesn't necessarily fit but entirely, but I want to talk about it anyway. I had a conversation with a guy from another city who wanted me to host a, a lunch, um, and he came up and, and, he, and, he, and he said, do you believe that the, the church should speak truth to power? And that was a really good question, and it's something I've thought a lot about because there is a prophetic ministry of the church. And you know, I, I've been thinking for years now, what does that look like in a church like ours where we try not to take positions on, on social issues? And this has been really challenging for me and painful at times. One friend who'd been very faithful to me and my family uh, asked me to host a lunch. I get asked to host lunches a lot. I don't know why. I don't know if that's a spiritual gift or what. But he, he, uh, he asked me to host a lunch for a political candidate. And I liked the candidate. I knew the candidate. And I said, I just, can't, I just can't do that because I'm not sure everybody in my church wants to vote for that candidate. And if I align myself that way, I'm sort of saying that's who all souls supports, and I don't want to do that. Ended the friendship. Ended it. It's over. It's over. Then uh, more recently, a friend who I love deeply, I don't think this one ended, but he, he said, uh, Doug, how about insure Tennessee? What do you think? And I said, well, I'm in favor of it. But He said, well, would you sign a letter? We've got all these pastors and bishops and priests and rabbis and imams signing a letter uh, to, to send to the legislator in support of insure Tennessee. And, and I thought and prayed about it, and I called him, and I said, I, I can't, I can't. And I, I think it really disappointed him. Um, and the reason why I didn't feel like I could was because even though I might have a particular position on this, I didn't feel free to speak for all of you. And I didn't want one of you to feel like, I don't know if I'm welcome in Doug's church because I'm against Insure Tennessee or, or whatever it is. So it's, this is complicated stuff. Um, it's very complicated stuff. But at the end of the day, right, the church must speak truth to power. As Dan prayed, that's part of what Christians are supposed to do. You know, I have a dear friend who wishes I'd take a position on um, uh, uh, I better come up with a different position. The um, (laughs) redistribution of wealth through taxation. She feels like it's very clear um, that that's what the Bible says should happen. And I uh, we were having a conversation about that, and she understands, actually. Um, but I, I, can't, I can't do that, because I don't think all Christians agree on that. 
So, what does it mean? Well, here's, here's my thought. Um, one is, I think what we need to do as a church is equip our people to know what you believe so that you can passionately and prophetically stand for what you believe. I, I think that's really, really important, that whatever you believe, we get behind you and support you as you share it, speak it. And then as a larger church, I think the most prophetic, radical, mind-blowing, Trinitarian, witnessing, countercultural, alien, absurdly ridiculous to hope for thing we could possibly do is love each other when we disagree. Our culture has no hope of that. Most churches, frankly, have no hope of that. We disagree, we start something new. And I I think that that's prophetic. That if, if I can love you and you can love me, even when I don't host a lunch for your candidate, that's pretty radical. So that's my best answer.